Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm your host. I'm also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And what you're about to listen to was a sermon that was preached at our Wednesday night gathering from 6.30 to 8.30 with our students. So I hope that this sermon is encouraging and a blessing to you today. Thanks for listening. All right, well, we're preaching on, I'm preaching on Acts 18, 1 through 11 tonight. And the subject, it's, it's the Gospel Command of Corinth, and the subject is encouragement for evangelism. So many of you guys many times have probably had opportunities to share the gospel, but you were scared or timid or ashamed. You didn't know what to say, and you just felt like you were insufficient to do it. And what you're going to see tonight is that Paul felt the same way, and he needed encouragement to share the gospel. So... Yes, the, so I hope this helps you tonight as you hear it. So we're in the book of Acts, obviously, and it comes into the, in Acts 1.8, Jesus ascended into heaven after dying on the cross for our sins and then being raised again to life. He ascended into heaven as a king. He commanded his people, go make disciples. And he told them that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, power, and then they'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So the Holy Spirit came, and they brought the gospel, Jerusalem first, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They brought it to the Gentiles, who were just people who were not Jews. Eventually, Paul became a minister of the gospel, and he came to many different places along the way. And recently, we heard Alex a while ago say that he brought the gospel to Philippi. And Colin last week explained how he came to Thessalonica and Berea, and he proclaimed the word of God, and the spirit of God was empowering him to do that. And... After he went to Thessalonica, the Jews had been persecuting him there. He went to Berea, they persecuted him there too. So then he went along to Athens. And at Athens, he preached the gospel to a bunch of philosophers, but not many responded. So then he came, where we find our text today, he came to Corinth. So read Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So I've broken this down to three parts. It's Christian fellowship as an encouragement for evangelism, and then Christ's proclamation, and then the last is Christ fellowship as an encouragement for evangelism. So first is Christian fellowship. Verse 1 says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So think about this. He'd been persecuted. 
He went to Athens and he proclaimed the gospel, but very few people responded. He's discouraged. But not only that, he's alone. Timothy and Silas, who were his partners, had been left in Thessalonica. And so he was alone in Corinth. And Corinth is, I'll give you some context of what it is. It was in Achaia. It was the biggest city in Achaia. It was the capital city right next to Athens. And it was a booming center of trade. The, The name, the city was associated with immorality. When people thought of Corinth, they thought that is the place where people are corrupt, where they're sinful and devoted to that. There was actually a temple of Aphrodite up the mountain, and there were the priestesses of this temple, about a thousand of them, who would come down to the city at night, and they were prostitutes. And it was just a place full of unrestrained immorality. And so Paul came here, and he sees all the corruption all around him. He sees how their eyes are darkened, and they're blinded by their sin. And he'd be discouraged. Actually, even the term, there was the term in those days called Corinthianized, which basically meant to live immorally. So they call someone who was uh, a prostitute, they call them a Corinthian girl or something like that. So this was a corrupt city. And Paul was here and he was discouraged. He's like, is anyone going to believe the gospel? So we're going to see how God encouraged him. First is the Christian fellowship. So it says, verses 2 and 3, And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So it says that they're Jews, but it's also clear from the text that they're, they're Christians, because if they weren't Christians, it would have said that they believed and were baptized. Um, all over the New Testament, you see them mentioned. In Romans 16, 3 through 5, Paul says, these are my partners in the gospel. They risked their lives for me. In every single church, it should be grateful to them for what they've done in service of the gospel. It even says that they had a church that met in their house. So these are strong Christians. Later in Acts, in Acts 19, they meet this guy named Apollos, who's a great speaker, and they tell him, he had, he had the truth pretty well, but they instructed him a little bit more. So they had good knowledge of the gospel. They had a church meeting in their house and they risked their lives for the sake of the gospel to go forward. So these are good Christians and he's with them and it's encouraging. So what we need to understand is that Christian fellowship is very important to encourage us for sharing the gospel. Paul was alone, but now he had partners. Um, Ecclesiastes 4 says, it's better for two to go together than one because if one of them falls, then the other can lift them up. And Philippians 1, 27 and 28 says, that the church should be striving together side by side in the cause of the gospel. It's something we do together. So we need encouragement. So two brief applications is this. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you guys think of Christian fellowship as something you have to do or something you need? Because in the Bible, it's very clear that we need it. We need to be with our brothers so they can encourage us. And also, so, so be involved with other Christians. And when you're with them, don't waste your time. We can have fun. We can enjoy our time together. And that's good. God wants us to do that. He wants us to eat s'mores and to eat donuts or rip your floats. Those are good things. I think so, at least. <laughs> and, but also, are you encouraging one another? Are you taking time deliberately to encourage others to share the gospel? 
or to in their Christian walk to study the word of God, to pray. We need that. I need that. I need people to come and encourage me when I'm discouraged. So if you see people that are discouraged, go to them, encourage them. I'm going on. Verse, verse four, it's, it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue. So he was working through the week, but he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. I'm going to stop there. So he's with his brothers and sisters in Christ, but even as he's working, he's discouraged. And I get this from 1 Thessalonians. It says in 1 Thessalonians that he was, he was worried about the church he had planted at Thessalonica because they had, he had brought the gospel to them, but he had had to leave so fast because of persecution. So he wasn't sure. He's like, are they, are they standing firm in the gospel? Have they fallen away? Are they growing in love, in faith, in hope? Are they getting involved in the gospel? And he wasn't sure. And another thing is, he's still, he's still waiting for his brothers. Uh, so he, he wants to be preaching every week. It's a good thing to work, but he's only able to preach on the Sabbath. And he sees all these people who need the gospel, all these people whose hearts are corrupted by sin and who can't see, they have no hope for salvation. And he sees them, but he doesn't have the opportunity to bring the gospel to them because he has to work. In 2 Corinthians, so then, so Paul's discouraged is the point that I'm trying to make. And verse five though says that Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. And if you look at the NASB, it translated to, instead of saying Paul was occupied with the word, it says he began to devote himself to the word because he wasn't able to before. So, Basically, Silas and Timothy came, and it says in 2 Corinthians eleven nine that they came from Macedonia and they brought money so that he could be supported by those another church's contribution and that he could devote himself more to the word. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, it says that Timothy came from Thessalonica and he told him about how the church was standing firm. He told them about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ and how the word of God was sounding forth from them. So Paul's now encouraged. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 that he was comforted by this news. So we need Christian fellowship. It encourages us. And what was the result of this Christian fellowship? Paul was encouraged, and now he's going to proclaim the gospel. And that's the next point, is the proclamation of Christ. Verse 5. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So what was Paul's message? It says right there, he was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. He came to them. He says, you guys are Jews. You know the Old Testament scriptures. You know about the sacrificial lamb that you lay your hand upon as a symbol of that bearing your guilt because you've sinned. You know the law that it says, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't hate, don't lust. You know you're not supposed to commit idolatry. You know you do these things. You've sinned. You need a savior. And so he told them, and he says, you know about a king who's going to come one day to save you. You know that there's going to be one day a greater priest who's going to give you access to God. You know of a prophet who one day is going to proclaim peace to you, that you're reconciled with God, that God will no longer judge you. You know that Christ is coming, that he'll save you, deliver you from your sins. And I'm telling you, the Christ is Jesus. First Corinthians, well, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, gives us an insight into what Paul proclaimed when he was with them. It says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what was the center of Paul's message? Jesus, the Christ came, and he was crucified. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, also Paul says about the gospel he preached to them. 
He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. We need to be reminded of the gospel every single week. Paul knew he needed to remind this church of the gospel. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. It's of first importance for us to know this message. The most important thing, what is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we've sinned, but what he's saying is that instead of us taking the taking the penalty for that sin, Jesus Christ did on the cross. He was condemned. He died for our sins. It says in the Old Testament that you have to be careful to do the whole law, and then you can live. So think of it like, I was thinking of this, and I was like, what's another place where someone has to be careful? I was thinking of a brain surgeon. They've got a surgery they've got to do, and they have to be so careful that they do exactly the right thing, because if they mess up in any way, they could permanently injure this person or even kill them. So think of the law that way. There's many things you can do wrong, but there's only one thing you can do right. You have to perfectly keep it. And if you're not careful to do it all perfectly, you will die. And so we've sinned and we have broken the law. And the result is that we die for that sin. But it says, instead of us dying, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again, demonstrating that he was perfect and righteous, that he was a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So that's the message Paul proclaimed. And he said, if you believe in this, this Jesus Christ who I proclaim, if you repent, you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven, no matter how many they are, no matter how guilty you feel. So that's the gospel he proclaimed. How was it received? What was the response? We've got that in verses 6 and 7, or 6 and 8. I'll just read verse 6 first. And when they, the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, why does he do this? What is he saying here? What does he mean? So the Jews, their response, there's two ways to respond to the gospel. Either you reject it or you receive it. The Jews rejected it. They opposed and reviled him. So we see two things in this verse. It's the guilt of those who continue in unbelief when they've heard the gospel and the innocence of those who tell the gospel to others. So first Paul says, he shook out his garments, which is basically saying, I'm, I have nothing more to do with you. I told you the gospel, you rejected it. You're gonna have to deal with the consequences of that. And then he says, your blood be on your own heads. What does he mean? Well, this actually comes from Ezekiel 33. And I'm gonna turn there. Paul says, I'll... Yeah, basically he's saying, if you hear the gospel and you reject it, you're guilty. You've had the chance to repent, but you haven't. So in Ezekiel 33, it's God talking to Ezekiel and saying, giving him an example of what his job is. He says, so, okay, if there's a sword, judgment coming against the city, well, he talks about there's a watchman on the city, (laughs) and... The job of that watchman is when he sees an enemy coming, he sees the bad guys coming to destroy the city, his job is to yell and scream and sound the alarm so that everybody can take cover, to warn them that danger, judgment, punishment is coming. And then he says, so if, if, if the enemy comes and the watchman screams out and says, everybody take cover, here's, here's one way you can respond. Verse four, he says, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. That's the same words. 
He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken his warning, this is verse six, verse five, he would have saved his life. So in other words, when you hear the gospel, you hear the warning, judgment is coming. There's only one way to be saved. Take cover in Jesus Christ. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. So when God's wrath comes against you, you can be taking shelter because instead of that punishment hitting you, it's hitting your strong tower. It's hitting Jesus Christ who suffered in our place on the cross. So anyways, you can hear the warning now that I'm telling you and you can repent or you can reject it. And Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, unless you believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God, you will die in your sins. But then there's the other side. Paul said, I am innocent. What does he mean by this? He's saying, because I, so I'll go to verse six of this one. It says, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them away, that person is take, taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. In other words, he's saying the watchman's duty is to warn. And if he doesn't do that, he's guilty. And Paul's saying here, I have proclaimed the gospel to you, so I'm not guilty. I'm innocent. In Acts 20, he says, I did not, sh- I, I declare to you now that I'm innocent of the blood of all because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Can you guys say that about the people you interact with? That you've warned them duly of the judgment that's coming. That you've told them that Jesus Christ is the only shelter. If someone, if one of your friends is on a train track and a train's coming, would you whisper? Or would you be like, I don't want to annoy them because they might get mad at me. No, you'd scream and you'd say, get off the train track. You're about to be destroyed. Well, judgment is coming against us. Do you say that? Do you say that to your friends? Do you warn them? Can you say with Paul, I am innocent? Lastly, Ezekiel 33, 11, just, it says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God. So we, we hear about judgment coming. God's going to judge people who sin, but he says this, say to them, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his, turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Have you turned back from your sin, from your evil ways? Why will you choose to die? God doesn't want you to die. He wants you to be saved. But if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be saved. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. So that's Christ's rejection by the Jews. They condemn themselves. Will you reject Christ? On the other hand, we see Christ's reception. It's by two different types of people. I got to go back to Acts 18. So it says he left there and went to the house of a man named... Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Okay, so a worshiper of God means he's a Jew, a Greek, that still worships the God of Israel. And he's a religious man, a moral man, and apparently he had believed the gospel already, and now he was letting Paul come in his house. So this man had believed the gospel. He had been saved. And he had to realize all my morality, all my worshiping God, all my attendance at the synagogue, I live right next door to it, won't get me anywhere. I need Christ to save me. Next is the person, it says, another person who received God says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So this is amazing. The ruler of the synagogue, they had just opposed and violent, but now the ruler of the synagogue had believed. And what happens when you believe? You transfer from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. 
You're made alive. Your sins are all forgiven. You're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that just happened to Crispus and his whole household. He also had to realize it doesn't matter if he's the ruler of the synagogue. It doesn't matter if he's the pastor of a church. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, he will die. His righteous deeds are filthy rags. His good works are garbage. He needs Jesus Christ. But you look at that and you think, okay, yes, those good people, they can be saved. But what about me? I have done things that no one else knows about. I've done things that no one could ever forgive me. Could God forgive me when he's so righteous and holy? Look at the next verse. It says in many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the words were, were the, in the imperfect tense, which means it kept going on. They were believing and were being baptized, many of them. But they're Corinthians. Do you remember who Corinthians were? They were the most immoral people in the entire world. Listen to this verse from 1 Corinthians. It says, it's talking about people that are corrupt, but being saved by God's grace. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When you sin, you deserve to die. But then he says, that's not the end. He says, and such were some of you. You were these sinners, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. doesn't matter how sinful you are. With these Corinthians, you can also believe and you can be saved. And if you are a Christian now, realize you were corrupt before God. But when you believed, he saved you. And rejoice and give thanks to God that he has done this for you. So, yeah, we see that humanity has one crippling disease. Whether you're a moral person or an immoral person, you have this disease and you will die. And there's only one cure. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So Paul's had this great success. People have received the gospel. And you think now he's going to be encouraged, right? Now he's going to be bold in proclaiming the gospel. Next verse. <clears throat> this is about Christ fellowship as an encouragement for evangelism. It says, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Wait, Paul's afraid? Why is he afraid? Why is he discouraged? He just had all this success. Well, probably one reason is that the Jews were still probably getting more jealous. They opposed and reviled him. They're probably getting more and more angry at him. Jealous because even the ruler of the synagogue had now believed. And so he's afraid. He's like, God, what if they hurt me? What if they kick me out? What if they stone me like they've done before? Or beat me with rods? What if they imprison me? I'm afraid. Have you ever been afraid that maybe your friends would not like you anymore if you told them about the gospel? Or maybe they'd get angry. Or maybe they just wouldn't want to listen. Or maybe you're like, I don't, I, I'm too weak. I don't know enough. How can I tell them about the gospel? Paul felt the same way. Paul's the great evangelist, the great apostle, probably the, the greatest theologian ever. And he was discouraged and he was weak. Remember that we're all weak. We're not, we're not chosen by God because we're strong, but because we're weak. So he can display his greatness, his grace. So we see how God addresses this. The Lord comes. The Lord comes himself to Paul to encourage him when he's so discouraged. Christ's fellowship is an encouragement. So 
9. He gives him a command, a commission. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. This is kind of like a renewal of the Great Commission. You're commanded to go and make disciples, to go and tell people about the gospel, to keep speaking, telling others. And Paul's, God's saying to Paul, keep speaking. I'm your king. You need to obey me. But he doesn't stop at that. He gives them encouragement. He says, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. We got three encouragements from this. One is Christ's presence, the Lord's presence. Second is the Lord's protection. And three is the Lord's purpose. These are encouragements to evangelism. The first one's the Lord's presence. He says, I am with you. All throughout the Bible, there'll be people who are afraid, who feel insufficient in themselves. And then God says, don't fear, I am with you. Think about Moses in Exodus 3.12. God said, I'm going to send you to Israel. He says, they're not going to listen to me. God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. In Exodus 4.12, God says, you're going to speak to them. And he says, but I'm not a good speaker. God says, I'll be with your mouth. In Joshua, well, in Exodus 33.14-16, God says, you need to go into, into, to take the promised land. And he says, God, if you don't go with us, let's not, I don't want to go because without you, we're going to fall to pieces. But God says, I will be with you and I'll give you rest. Joshua 1, 5 through 9, he's at the edge of the promised land and God says, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Why? Why should we not be terrified? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 1, 8, God says, you're going to be a prophet. I chose you. I set you apart before, before you were born. Jeremiah says, but I'm a little kid and I'm not good at speaking and they're going to hurt me. And God says, I'll protect you and I will be with your mouth. I will put the words in your mouth. It goes on. Matthew 28, God says, go make disciples. Then he says, his encouragement, his promise, I will be with you wherever you go. So remember, when you don't feel like you're sufficient, remember that you are not sufficient. You never will be. You never will be able to share the gospel perfectly. But God has given you a promise. I will be with you. I will be with you. This is a promise that I've been holding on to today. I see I'm not capable. I'm preaching to people who some of them are dead in their sins. Some of them are struggling with the flesh. Satan is working to discourage you. What can I do? Nothing. But I believe in the power of God's word. And God said, I will be with you. And I took hold of that promise and I prayed, God, you've promised it. Do it. And so that's a promise. God's presence will be with you. Next is the Lord's protection. What does he say? He says, no one will attack you to harm you. Now, it's not guaranteed that you're not going to be harmed. Because sometimes Paul was persecuted. But God said, right now, I'm going to protect you. And what does that show us? It shows us that God is sovereign. Are you in a den of lions like Daniel? He can shut the mouths of lions. Are you going to be thrown into a fiery furnace? He can save you from the fire. Are you thrown into a prison? He can break the prison doors open. God is sovereign. Are there enemies who want to hurt you, to kill you? He can keep them from doing so. God is sovereign. So sometimes he will save you from persecution, from people hating you, hurting you, ostracizing you. And other times he lets that happen but he is sovereign over it all. Sometimes he permits suffering, sometimes he prevents it. But realize that even if he doesn't save you from a trial, he will save you through it. He will use it for, the, for your greater good. He will use it to make you more like Jesus Christ, which is the greatest, most beautiful thing we can have. That is our final end. We will be like Christ. We will be freed from our sin. That is our hope. 
So God's protection. He is sovereign. Trust in him. If he wants to, he can protect you. And either way, he will save you and transfer you, bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. The last one, Paul, God says the purpose. Why does he command Paul to go tell the gospel to them? Why does he tell them to keep speaking? And why does he say, I'll be with you and I'll protect you? There's a purpose. He says for, which is saying because. Because I have many in the city who are my people. This is God's purpose. God has a mission. He says, there's people in the city. They haven't believed the gospel yet, but I've already chosen them. And when you go tell the gospel to them, I'm guaranteeing they will believe. They are my people already. And John 10, it says, Jesus is saying, why don't you religious leaders believe the gospel? It's because you're not my sheep. But my sheep, those whom I've chosen, they hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. So God is saying, I have a mission. I have a mission. I'm going to save my people. I love them. So you go, and I'm guaranteeing success. You plant the seed, says later in 1 Corinthians, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. So there's guaranteed results. Because, so remember this as an encouragement. God will be with you. He is sovereign, and he has chosen some people. So when you share the gospel, there is guaranteed results that some people will come to salvation, all whom God has chosen. I want to read you two verses. So some people think, well, if God's sovereign and he elects people, then why should we even share the gospel? Why should we even obey God? Why should we even pray? And that's totally unbiblical. <laughs> um, in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 11, I'm just going to read 10. It says, therefore, Paul is saying this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. In other words, he's saying, because they're elect, that's why I'm enduring suffering. That's why I'm proclaiming the gospel. And then another verse, Titus 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why? Why am I, what's my purpose? It's for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he's saying, why do I do my ministry? It's because I know that some will be saved. Otherwise, no one would be because they're so darkened by sin. They're so corrupt. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 that, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But then he says, that's not the end. Because there's been a time where it was complete darkness before. It was before creation. But then what happened? God spoke. He said, let there be light and there was light. And he says, the God who says, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is the only one who can save us. God is the only one who can reveal Christ and his salvation to us. And he will do it. So when you go to share the gospel, remember that God will be with you and say, God, I know I can't talk very well. I know I don't know the gospel very well, but would you be with me and give me the words to speak? God, I'm afraid, but I know you're sovereign and whatever happens, you will protect me and you will do what is best, even if it means that I'm going to lose friends. Then you say, God, I also know that some people who I'm going to share the gospel with, you've already chosen. You will save them. So remember that. And with those encouragements, go and preach the good news to all creation and teach them to follow Jesus. One last thing is, after Paul preached the, talked about the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5, about how we are, can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, who became sin when he had never sinned, so that we might, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then he says... So working together with Christ, we appeal to you 
not to receive the grace of God in vain. So he's saying, I've told you the gospel, don't receive it in vain. Listen, believe, repent. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You've heard the gospel. You've heard God's word. Act upon it. Call on God to help you. Call on him to save you. And he says, I'll listen to you. you you're not guaranteed even tomorrow. But you're guaranteed right now that if you believe in the gospel, he'll give you eternal life. Out of his grace and love. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. 